Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. And I'm Amy Kraft. And Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition made up of researchers, producers, parents, and educators. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. And Amy, you know, I told you this joke, right, that my friends, when they listen to this diversity in apps, or I tell them I'm recording a, a podcast on diversity in apps, they, they start talking about appetizers, right? All the various appetizers. So I have Today to we'll it... be talking about cheese logs. Right. And... <laughs> and nachos and potato skins. So stay tuned for that. But no, this podcast is, is one of the ways we get the word out about our organization. Um, we send out a weekly newsletter. Um, usually comes out every Sunday, and we um, pull some articles from that news news newsletter um, to to talk about. And we also like to invite folks from the children's media industry on um, to talk about the work that um, that they're doing. Amy, you want to talk a little bit about our guest that we have coming up? Yehudi Mercado is a comic book author and illustrator, really talented artist and art director. We're excited to have him on. Yeah, it's a, it's a great interview. We just, just finished recording it. So it's coming up a little bit later, but we wanted to first talk about a, a few things related to the achievement gap, um, gender, um, in technology, etc., And we found, uh, three articles this week that sort of all, all related. And the first one was an interview in, um, in Ed Surge this week with one of the founders of Black Girls Code, uh, Kimberly Bryant. And there was a couple of things that, um, you know, they talked about at the beginning of the articles. First, um, females enrolled in computer science, um, that discipline in college has actually declined from 40% in the 80s to under 20% today. And then um, some of that has to do with sort of female students are less aware of online and local opportunities to learn computer science, which sort of drove um, Kimberly. To, she is an engineer by background, and, and that's what sort of led her to, to start Black, Girl Code, Black Girls Code. Um, Amy, have you had, uh, have you interacted with them at all? No, I've interacted with some other girls coding organizations, but never Black Girls Code. I'm mm. very interested because there's not only like the gender bias, but there's a racial bias in who is getting into computer science. Right. So it's great knowing about this organization. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. She actually talks about she talks about the race and the the gender lens of diversity, but then you know she talks about how there's um, also sort of an age diversity piece being discussed. Mm. Um, in sort of the technology sector, um, how it's obviously geared towards to younger folks, which I thought was interesting. And I think we talk about that all the time, right, with the Dig Toolkit and sort of just generally at, at Diversity in Apps about how you have to see diversity through through different lenses. So yeah, absolutely. I, I thought that was um, that was really interesting. And then another big piece that she talks about is sort of the evolution of um, the organization from where. It, it was really focused on coding and sort of teaching these skills about how to code and, and what it takes to, to develop. But what she's seen is that the girls who are enrolled in these programs are sort of have much bigger ambitions of sort of, I don't want to just be a coder. I want to have my own video game, um, you know, company or, you know, they're, 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 
training has now become about leaders and, and creating and, and leadership. And I thought that was, um, that was just part of sort of what comes from, from building up this skill. This is something I think about all the time because mm -hmm. it always comes up and like, should all kids be required to code? How can we get more kids coding? Yeah. But it's such a narrow view in terms of what you can do. Um, a couple years ago, I was doing Scratch in a fourth grade classroom. It was just sort of like part of the kids' choice time and right. some kids came to me. So part of it was self-selection at first. So I had a mix of... Um, boys and girls. Um, but gradually more and more kids came over to just try it out. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about that is like, there was one girl in particular, I just watched her having never done it before, just understand it and take to it immediately mm -hmm. like just with like a real fluency to it. And yeah. I think that that like, it was fun watching something click, you know, yeah. Oh, right. Um, and also, you know, I wanted to be a woman modeling, this coding, right, of course, right. you know, pretty soon they surpass my coding ability. <laughs> but what I wanted to tell them, it's like, okay, and Scratch is a wonderful place to kind of let kids know this. Mm -hmm. Making games is so much more than just the coding piece, right. but you really need to understand the coding piece to be a good game designer or producer or head of a gaming company. Yeah. The more you understand, the more you can use it in your work. But I think even watching products targeted to like my six-year-old, it's like, here, start coding. Mm -hmm. But without the why, you know, it's like, why do you code? Right. Like, I think that we don't do a good job of telling the youngest coders why we code. Right. You give them clear objectives, like get the character to the star using mm -hmm. code and something like the foos, which is great product, by the way. For sure. um, but it's sort of like, a why? Why do I need to use these coding blocks versus my controller? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, think that... Um, kids don't always have a frame of reference. One thing, um, you know, my gaming company, I'm proud to be a woman-led gaming company, <laughs> uh, we just made some games for the Curious World app, um, which is uh, Houghton Mifflin's uh, app for two to seven-year-olds. Right. And they're called Game Changers. Um, and what you do is you play through like a arcade style game. So like one is squirting food at food. So like you might be squirting mustard at hot dogs and the hot dogs right. are very and they disappear in a Space Invader style game. But if you played through a level, there are all these sort of um, variables that you can change. And by changing variables, how fast things are, how many enemies there are, what you're squirting, you know, and kids just sort of turn these dials, so to speak. Yeah. When they come back, they see how that's affected their games. Like, whoa, I made this really right. hard. Now right. this is easy. It's boring. Right. So, like, are there more things that we can do to get kids understanding why we code? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember when I played, um, I used to play this basketball game on my Super Nintendo. And whenever I would start losing, I would go back into the players and set all my players to 99. Yeah. And, and put all those guys at 50 to make sure that I, would, I could come back. So same concept of sort of turning the dials. But yeah, I, I think that um, that's exactly right, setting the context. The other thing I was thinking was, you know, like you were saying, it was self-selection. And, you know, these ki the kids probably have been told, I bet even by fourth grade, they've sort of been told, that's not for me, or like coding is not mm -hmm. for me. And, you know probably these these kids who are going to to black girls code 
are like they get a little bit of confidence they feel like they're learning this skill and so their ambition gets a little bit bigger and they start thinking about like no I don't want to just code I want to do something something more so their self-esteem goes up their leadership and with leadership sort of you know it's just like that all feeds into it which I thought was made a lot of sense and is is super fascinating I, I thought that was great this ties so closely to an article in Fortune today mm-hmm. that says, who's to blame for the gender gap in STEM? Start right. with kindergarten teachers. Now, I don't like that headline particularly no, much. Did I. It's like kindergarten teachers. You're at yeah, all. let's start with the teachers. It was more like this idea of like the messaging that like it basically starts off girls and boys come to kindergarten with very similar math skills. There's mm-hmm. not a big difference. But through subtle signals throughout elementary school, you start to see like um, who has math anxiety or who do we expect to perform really well at math and mm-hmm. who do we expect not to perform. And a gender gap starts to grow really early on. And so when you, we talk about like fourth graders who are self-selecting for coding, like by fourth grade, you know, this, I think you could argue reading this fortune article by fourth grade, kids have gotten some pretty strong messaging already about a gender split in who would be good at this. Right. Yeah, for sure. I I think that, you know, that fortune article talks about very old research that the Pygmalion effect about how expectations sort of dictate outcomes. So it's, it's a big predictor of success. So, and I think as things radiate outward, you know, getting back to the black girls code, when you're in Silicon Valley, everyone Mm -hmm. just has the Mark Zuckerberg image in their head. Mm -hmm. It's like a young, you know, that getting back to the age thing, young white guy, you know, wearing his jeans and a hoodie, you know, being the Silicon Valley star. Right. Even, um, you know, I've had some experience with investors. It's what investors are looking for, too. Yeah. So it's like, where's my young, hot male superstar? Right. And usually privileged from a privileged background. Right. I think that sort of the ability to, like, not have, you know, when you're doing a startup and you don't have income for 18 months, like, chances are you're probably not coming from a lower socioeconomic background, like, probably can't do that for 18 months so yeah and even in the the interview um with Kimberly Bryant she talks about like then when Mm. you have to deal with issues that um kids don't have broadband yeah some kids don't have access to broadband outside of school some kids not even in school so when you're dealing with that when you're talking about like coding and computer science and technology, there's only so much you could get from reading a book. Right. And the rest is like hands on. Right. She says repetition and and practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you don't have access to the broadband at at home, like how are you going to get the reps in and the practice? The, the 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell says we need for. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Genius. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought both those articles really went hand in hand. And then there was another piece that, that you found about sort of related to the achievement gap and sort of the how we talk about the achievement gap maybe needs to be to be looked at. Um, I'm trying to remember where, what... Um, yeah, it's the African-American Intellectual Historical Society. Right. Um, post by Ibram Kendi, um, who... 
let me see. It's he's a professor at of University history at Florida. University of Florida. Yeah. Um, and he's talking about the academic achievement gap is a racist idea, just like the like the way that we talk about differences in school and schools and kids' abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that it's founded on some deeply racist principles and we need to address that because as we get into this as we get into it we've been in it Mm -hmm. we live in this era of standardized testing that does not welcome multiculturalism at all um you know it kind of gets at like what if we could test kids for what they know how curious they are what they know in their own environment um versus what everyone's expected to know about you know a privileged white environment like even as standardized tests are created um it's not created with different knowledge bases in mind in terms of kids day-to-day life and when you're talking about standardized testing starting in third grade like these are young kids and so if kids haven't gotten very far out of their neighborhood haven't traveled a lot you know what they know is the world around them for sure i I was just really, it really made me think about the stuff we've talked about before where you have to understand sort of the history of where, like, the achievement gap didn't come out of, like, it didn't just show up one day, right? And, like, Mm -hmm. that, the way that's talked about or sort of how standardized testing came about comes from a history of what? Sort of, like, this, the racist undertone of sort of how people thought black and white what they could um what they could achieve was you know inherent and i thought that was you know if you don't understand that then you sort of have you don't really understand the entire um piece of of what he's talking about so i think it does a good job of sort of introducing where um all this vocabulary came from and then where how it evolved and and where it is now um and i i thought the um, I like I, I don't think I've really looked at it like I I think I've always heard the the term achievement gap and just sort of accepted it. This was like mm-hmm. sort of a, a different way of of thinking about it. Yeah, and they say like the greatest indicator of how well you'll do on a standardized test is the income level of your family. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no getting around that. Like, right. it's. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's what you just said. Like, if yeah, more income means more experiences and and traveling and sort of getting outside of of the world that you live in, um, your neighborhood, and that is going to help you um, on the on those tests. I think you know um, they. I, I think I've heard this anecdote before where they talk about like there might be a test question around airplanes or something, and like. There's plenty of kids who have never been on an airplane and will have no mm-hmm. context for how to answer this question or, or, or what it means. And like those things are just naturally built into the, the testing that happens. Right. And if you think about kids like reading passages on farms versus passages mm-hmm. about cities, depending on where you grow up, your comprehension of those things is going to be very different. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I think... Um, you know these three. It was it was interesting how these three articles sort of came out this the same <laughs> week. They really, um, they really tie together well. And you know, we'll, we'll be sure to if we don't have them in the newsletter, we'll put them in the show notes because they were, they were very well written and and really 
I, I think, um, sort of go together, like I said. Yeah, and I think that anyone working in the ed tech space um, should really be thinking about these issues. You know, like there are so many things in ed tech that's like, read this passage, now we're going to check comprehension, or, you know, like basing science and math on everyday experiences. But, you know, it, it becomes the question of what is the everyday and how can you get at celebrating kids' differences to still be able to assess their knowledge right you know what i mean yeah yeah no that that makes a lot of sense i think just you have to be vigilant about what what you're testing and, and sort of the context that you're doing it and sort of the how the what the kids know based on where they live and whether it's city or rural etc so yeah, it's yeah. interesting reading all these two just coming through the New York City middle school application process, mm -hmm. which for those of you out of New York City, um, just for public schools, my daughter took three tests, wrote a couple essays, went to a couple interviews, and again, public school. Um, and I think that part of the goal like of like schools with their own entrance exam is sort of like this idea of meritocracy. Yeah. However... Part of that is, is like you need parents with flexible work time to be able to like go on these tours, transport their kids to the tests that mm -hmm. are only on like one or two very specific days. Here's your time or else, um, you know, and there was so much about it that felt like an unlevel playing field. Like I work for myself. I have very flexible hours. I can go on all these tours. That's me and that's my life. And I want to give my child these advantages. But it was really hard thinking through that whole process, how unfair it all seemed. Yeah, for sure. I think um, we've talked about this before, that sort of the, um, the arms race that's sort of been created, um, which is, you know, exacerbated in New York, but it's, I'm sure it's throughout the country that where, um, upper middle class sort of um, families recognized the need for education and sort of the importance of ed of education and then also have the wherewithal and the resources to sort of work the system. I, mm -hmm. Maybe that's not the best way to put it, but sort of. No, know. I think it's absolutely <laughs> the way to put it because you do. It's like, how can I game the system to mm -hmm. my advantage? Right, right. And so, you know, you continue to sort of create this barrier and sort of this gulf of where people who have the resources and time and flexibility like you said to be able to to access these tours or even like figure out which website they're supposed to go to etc and and work through the bureaucracy then are the ones that continue and then it sort of creates there's a great piece in the Atlantic this week about meritocracy and sort of what it's starting to become is like people who then know how to work the system believe or are being told but that they have reached the top by bootstrapping right because yep. that's what we want to believe when in reality what's happened is they've worked to all their advantages that they've had to maintain their their status so um, right and there's no doubt you might have worked really really hard so it yeah. feels super bootstrappy <laughs> right right for sure yeah like, that's well said mm, yeah but put yourself in someone else's boots for a while yeah. and yeah. So. And when you see like how much harder you have to work, it's it's really something. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, like I said, I, th I think New York is sort of, um, you know, makes this like you know you have these 
um, all these families that are, are all doing the same thing that you were doing and it sort of um, reaches a, a fevered pitch for sure. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, a, it's across the country. So, um, so yeah, definitely check out these, um, these three articles and um, stay tuned for our fantastic interview with uh, Yehudi Mercado. We're so excited to welcome our guest today, Yehudi Mercado, who recently has been an art director for the Walt Disney Company working on Marvel and Star Wars product. He's contributed to comics like Uncle Grandpa, Adventure Time, Regular Show, and The Amazing World of Gumball, and has done some of his own comics, including Pantalones, Texas, Buffalo Speedway, and the upcoming Hero Hotel. Hi, Yehudi. Hey, hey. How are you? Good. So happy to have you on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sure. So super excited about Hero Hotel. Can you tell us a little bit about this new comic? Yeah. It's an all-ages graphic novel. Um it uh, stars Chet and his cat Boomer, and they go to work in a hotel that happens to be frequented by superheroes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the hook is that they're not huge fans of superheroes, because basically at a hotel for superheroes, the, the heroes are at their worst. So when they're on vacation, you know, they don't clean their room, they don't pick up after themselves, they're really needy, they're kind of divas. <laughs> so it's, it's more about the hotel staff that has to deal with these right these uh, superstars. I love the their, premise for this. Yeah, yeah do their particular sure. superpowers uh, factor in in different ways? Well, the Chet does not have powers, and that's right. one of like the rules I gave the other contributors. Like uh, that's one of the main rule: Chet will never get superpowers. Uh, but Boomer, his cat, does. So he accidentally <laughs> he accidentally drank power milk instead of powdered milk and now he's got all these crazy powers that he can't even control <laughs> that is awesome yeah. uh, this would be a great one for my kids you all mentioned right. collaborators um what kinds of things are they contributing to hero hotel and how did you pick these collaborators well because i worked on you know the boom properties like mm -hmm. adventure time i always liked how they had you know the main story and then a backup story so it just helps make the property feel like it's got some you know legacy to it like it's a bit mm -hmm. bigger you know it can show that there's many different stories you can tell and especially with something like hero hotel it's very gag driven like right anything can happen almost like variety show style so uh basically over the past what five six years that i've been doing comics i've met all kinds of great folks on the convention circuit and um yeah just reached out uh, when I was putting this together and I put it together really quickly. So I, I knew like, I knew I was asking a lot out of these guys cause you know, everyone's super busy. So I was like, I made sure, you know, I, that I gave them all, a lot of instruction, a lot of like stuff to play with. And, uh, yeah, everyone really came together and knocked it out. So and like, how, super. like what was the, the timeline in terms of Sort of how when you came up with the idea and then reaching out to the contributors, it looks like it's going to ship now right before Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I had that idea for a long time. Uh, I pitched it as an animated series, uh, but then you know I always had this idea in the back of my head. So I was thinking like, oh, maybe I should just do it as a web comic. Do it, you know, little gags, little six-page gags that I can just do quickly and. 
put it up online. And then I started talking to my friends at Fanbase Press, and they're the ones publishing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have their own little podcast network, and they started to get into publishing more original stuff. Um, so I thought, oh, it would be perfect, because I, they basically guaranteed, like, if I could get it done by, basically by beginning of October, that it could be on shelves by November. Oh, sweet. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like, oh, hell yeah. That's, that's great. I know so it'll be under the Christmas tree for my kids. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, it actually happened really quickly because I basically started it after Comic-Con. Wow. It was in July. Wow. And it's 108 pages, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, I noticed uh, your list of collaborators has some really impressive names on it, and it's not all white dudes. So nothing, you know, <laughs> other white dudes. But um, as as we talk about diversity in comics, is yeah. that something you sort of like actively looked for? Uh, no, actually, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of me was thinking, oh, I, I did. There was one final like two page story that my friend Amanda wrote. She's Jeff, Jeffrey and Amanda are part of Devastator Press, uh-huh. They're like a comedy quarterly comic book, uh, and she's black, but I didn't even like think of that, but then when it came time to pick the artist, I was like, oh, crap, I need, probably need another female artist, because I already have Megan Levins on another, the one that Jeffrey's writing, mm-hmm. um, and I reached out to a couple, but the timeline was too short, so I had to wind up drawing that one myself, so... It's me identifying as a woman. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> but yeah, Amanda's really funny. I really wanted to get her to do. And she did the little two-page gag about basically one of the staff members of Hero Hotel is a cosplay girl. Oh. And like the kind of confusion that gets, you know, that happens when you're a cosplay girl dressing as a hero in a Hero Hotel. Right. <laughs> kind of wacky. A lot of layers there, yeah. <laughs> it's madcap. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Right. Um, but in general, I mean, you've been interested in and then involved in comics for a long time. Like, are you seeing, like, do you feel like there's like a good shift towards diverse voices having a place in comics? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had such a unique, because I mean, you know, the first published book I did was Archaea, and they always had a lot of female creators, and then and then they got bought by Boom, and then, you know, Boom with Shannon Waters and, like, Lumberjanes, like, it always felt very female positive, had a big female positive energy to it anyway so i love lumberjanes yeah, yeah. so good yeah it sounds <laughs> like you've had a very so many unique experience in terms of like mo- i i would say most comic books or or the comic world is is not dominated by by yeah. female and, and even like because i also work in games too but mm-hmm. you know more, more casual games and i've always had yeah always worked with females there and had female executive producers so I never even like in even in the games industry, I never went through the super bro, triple A right right locker room talk fest. <laughs> do you uh, do you feel like while you've sort of had a uh, obviously unique path, do you feel like oh, the world itself is changing? The comic book world itself is changing just from going to more and more or going to comic cons every year and sort of seeing how 
the the people that are that are showing up for those and contributing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah, since the six years I've been doing it. Right. Yeah, it feels like it's changed dramatically. Yeah. And at Comic Cons, you you often feature like some really awesome things. One of my favorite things that you've done is your Captain Judaica T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you want to like describe right. that and the reaction you get to it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, so it's a T-shirt basically with the Iron Man, or not Iron Man, Captain America shield, but instead of just a regular star, it's a Jewish Star of David, and it it gets a funny reaction because it usually takes people a couple of glances. Right. They, it's like, so subtle. <laughs> <laughs> so then the people that do get it usually like point and nod. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever gotten a question like, hey man, that there's something wrong with your t shirt? Or like they, <laughs> That's not canon. Uh, well <laughs> <laughs> That's not canon. That's perfect, Damien. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. great. Yeah. So, yeah, and I've started to sell though because there's so many different like making shirts is so expensive because you have to buy like all the different sizes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I've been selling them on T Public now. Oh, nice. Right. So, yeah. We'll uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to it. That's really awesome. cool. Yeah. Um, How about I, like online fandom? You know, right. Entertainment Weekly this week published about Chelsea Kane writer of Mockingbird number eight, basically having to leave Twitter because um, the main character, um, Bobby Morse, is wearing a t-shirt asking me about my feminist agenda. And I don't know if it's that the word feminist was too close to her boobs and that distracted guys <laughs> from like looking at, but whatever. So people were like sort of like outraged and there's this real troll community that, um, you know, or some might say avid fans. I say troll. <laughs> um, but do you yeah, think that not. influences yeah. how things get made and what gets chosen to be made and published? I hope not. Like, I hope this is not something that, like, the higher-ups... I mean, I hope they pay attention to how they need to combat it, but not, like, bow to it, you know? Right. How have you, like... Have you felt like over the last six years working in comics, like when you're creating something, do you find yourself t sometimes being like, oh, I, I wonder what sort of online reaction I'm going to get because, and does that sort of make you pause? I mean, like, I obviously certainly hope not, but it, I think it's... No. It's, no. I mean, I'm lucky, you know, I'm a guy, yeah. so... That's I just, true. I, I never see any of this, like, sort of reaction on anything. Yeah. Uh and, but, you know, what's interesting, because we worked on, uh, you know, the, the, at Disney, we worked on this Toys to Life thing called Playmation, mm -hmm. and it was using the, you know, the Avengers, right. and we kept pushing for Black Widow to be one of the first toys to come out, but it was, re it was Hasbro that really pushed against it, mm -hmm. Hmm. and, like, even having Black Widow on the cover of the box, like, they were really pushing against it, and no, it was... It was only until the backlash after Age of Ultron came out that they were like, oh, crap, let's stop the presses. <laughs> let's reprint these boxes. And it's like, dude, it's like, just think about it for a second. Like, you're getting yeah. all this criticism about not having female action figures and 
Yeah, totally. And we've even talked this. before about like Black Widow's motorcycle being sold with yeah. Hawkeye <laughs> instead. And it's like, come on. <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. yeah. But that's interesting. Your insider perspective of even when you push for it, right. which is something yeah. that we're always trying to amplify, it doesn't, it still doesn't necessarily well, happen. Even with the companion app. So I was doing the companion app and, you know, we have a whole like shield database where you can like read about the characters and like see the you know their images, so we even asked Marvel like, oh, can we use um, uh, Maria Hill as sort of like the character that you're like asking about, like, oh, what's this enemy about? And it's sort of like we could write the database sort of in her voice as if she's giving like all the exposition, mm-hmm. and they're like, no, why don't you make that Black Widow? I said, what? <laughs> Didn't make it seem like she's the secretary of the Avengers, like right. Uh, We're giving like, you one lady, so do yeah. with her all the lady bits. Yeah, it's just yeah. Wow, that's really yeah. disappointing. And yeah. I think it sort of goes to remember, Amy. We were talking about this with the uh, Where's Ray thing about mm-hmm. how a lot of the toy manufacturers were like, "Well, we get we have to make these toys so far in advance." For um, you know, before the movie comes out, so we don't know what's going to be popular. I mean, here's a prime example where like Age of Ultron was was coming out. They're pushing to like put Black Widow as one of the toys, and it's getting rejected even early on. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and I, I do think partially they did not realize how huge Ray would be, because even like in Episode Eight. I heard the original script, there wasn't much of Ray in it either. Right, like episode like, seven, uh, yeah. Or you mean even the new one coming out? Yeah, even in eight, yeah. Oh. So I think they really did not count on the new characters taking off like oh. they did. But that's no excuse. I mean, right. she was clearly the star of that movie. <laughs> she was on the poster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then they, they tried to make the excuse of like, oh, we didn't want to reveal that she held a lightsaber. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someone yeah. held a lightsaber in a yeah. Star Wars movie? <laughs> yeah, spoiler. Yes. Yeah. Pretty much all they did in the prequels. So. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. The other thing we've been looking at a lot at this week is um, the J. Scott Campbell variant cover for Invincible Iron Man, uh, which features our 15-year-old Riri Williams, who we've talked about a little bit before on the podcast, because we're so excited to have a black teenage Iron Man. This is very exciting. But it got pulled because um, he lightened her skin and drew her in a very sexy way. Although I have to say, now the more that I dig into this, I actually don't fault J. Scott Campbell because I just had a look through his body of work. This dude's got one way of drawing women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's really, I feel like it's on Marvel for... Yeah, totally. Yeah, I I agree. It's like, yeah, it's like getting Hugh Hefner to... uh, (laughs) Right, to give like a feminist speech. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. But I feel like this is where like the internet gives us wonderful things. You know, we're talking about trolls, but here it's like, you know, people in response to this controversy have drawn like um, what they, their interpretations of what a 15 year old 
like Riri Williams would look like. And there's one that I love so much. It looks like the Sailor Moon style. That's yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but just that there's like, we'll put a link to um, a post that's got like a, a lot of really great examples. Um, but it's kind of amazing when you see like all these different art styles of like, yeah, that's what a 15 year old can mm-hmm. look like. Yeah. And you know that like in your stuff, like you and I worked years ago together on a product for um, elementary school age kids where like just some really cool teen characters. Like do you, do you have a different way of like approaching different characters? Because I feel like your characters too, you get a lot of different body types in your characters. Yeah, I mean, that's just sort of, you know, in animation you're, you're taught that you definitely need different body types you know, it's very different from comics, where in comics, usually everybody's silhouette without their costume looks the exact same, you know, mm-hmm. male and female. But in animation, you're sort of taught, like, oh, you know, to diversify your, the silhouettes of all your characters, just so that it's easier on the eye, and you can really, like, immediately tell which character is which, and you can tell their personality just from their silhouette. So hmm. that, I sort of approached it more from an animator's perspective. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's boring to draw the same body over and over. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Like, yeah, the muscles on dudes and then, like, the curves on the women. Yeah, like, I even noticed, like, especially when they switched artists on this Iron Man mm-hmm. that, that introduced Riri, like, because David Marquez did the, the first issues, and he's the best. Like, that's, he, that, his stuff is amazing. But then I forget who did the new one. But it just looks, I don't know, it just, it just looks like he's tracing photos mm-hmm. of guys instead of, like, drawing the characters from scratch. And that tends to make everything look samey. I mean, even, yeah. like, without their costumes, these you can't tell, like, Tony Stark from Doctor Doom. It's very strange. Right, right. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the animator perspective because, like, when I think about, like, watching J. Scott Campbell's women move, it would be really funny to watch because <laughs> they're, they're so yeah, yeah. out of proportion that yeah. they literally <laughs> couldn't move except to like stick their hip out, you know. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Only slow motion hair. You know, hair <laughs> right. Maybe a hair clip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but even Riri in the, in the comic, you know, she's supposed to be 15, she goes to MIT, but still... Even the way she was first introduced, yeah. she just looks way older, mm-hmm. than even in the book. So, I don't know. Hmm. Like, why even make her 15 at that point? Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. she does. She, she, like, looks in her 20s or something. Like, there's yeah. there's definitely not a kid-like quality about her, which is in right. part why I love all these online samples. Because when you yeah. see examples that have a kid-like quality, it's like, that's what 15 looks like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they should have just made her in her 20s. I don't think it would have made a difference. To the right. Because yeah. the only thing they were like, I guess they were making jokes that, hey, aren't you 12? Or, you know, but. Oh. But, but like, it was like throwaway jokes. It had nothing to do with the her needing to be 15 right. at MIT. Then, yeah. Hmm. And then, have you, have you been watching Gotham? I started watching it and then I lost a way of watching it because I'm a cord cutter. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's been a questionable twist with the Poison Ivy character. So, like, you know, it's all oh, I, yes, the I younger versions of, like, you know, 
Catwoman and Poison Ivy. So, <laughs> for some reason, this season, Poison Ivy falls in, like, some toxic sewage. <clears throat> you know, she goes in the water at, like, 14, 15, comes out as, like, a hot 25-year-old. Huh. It just seems very questionable. Yeah, I remember reading something about that. Like, they knew that Poison Ivy would be sexy, like, that they wanted her to be sexy, um, so they couldn't have a 14-year-old be sexy, so they recast. Like, something very yeah. strange about yeah. sexiness. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Couldn't Poison Ivy be a child for a while? Hey, yeah, you guys made the decision to set these as kids. So this yeah. season is yeah. all just putting the villains as as younger versions of themselves? Well, that's how it started. So it right. starts with young Bruce Wayne, um, and it's more about Commissioner Gordon as a cop. I see. Yeah. Oh. But, um, yeah. But then that got me into thinking, like, oh, then is it, then was, like, 13 going on 30? Was that super creepy? And I didn't realize. Yeah. I gotta rewatch that. That might yeah. be creepy. Yeah, now yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, probably. <laughs> and then, like, the movie Big, like, tell me, like, basically... What, Elizabeth, yeah. what's her name? Was she a child? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, right. I think I read some, like, medium piece about this. About yeah. <laughs> this exact premise. But I was like, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not reading this all the way through. I love that movie, so. Yeah. Uh, start to question things. Right. Well, speaking of things that, like, from our childhood or from earlier times that might be considered problematic. Now, you and I have talked a little bit about Speedy Gonzalez. And oh, when yeah. I, when that comes to mind it seems to me like if i tried to watch that with my kids now i haven't gone back to watch it it would be really problematic as are most of the cartoons i watched as a kid yeah <laughs> um but they're talking warner brothers is talking about making a speedy gonzalez movie and you were very excited about this right <laughs> yeah because i had drawn just like as a piece of fan art like it like just recontextualizing what speedy gonzalez could be in the modern age and you know he's more of like a like a race car driver character, like with a race, racing helmet. And you could have more of a like a speed racer kind of vibe. Oh, that'd and, be cool. Uh, Warner Brothers, you listening? <laughs> yeah. <hey. laughs> but did you yeah. find it problematic growing up watching uh, watching uh, Speedy Gonzales? Do you remember watching it and being like, hmm? Yeah, it was. I guess it was more. It was more like Slowpoke Rodriguez, uh-huh. uh, the cousin, like. Because he was the, really the one, like, talking in the, ah, see, you know, like the, <laughs> the really, <laughs> like, the over-the-top Mel Blanc Mexican right. voice. Like, yeah. But, um, no, actually, I, I loved Speedy Gonzales. <laughs> well, it's awesome. Yeah. And it's so funny. Like, I remember there was one where Foghorn Leghorn was <laughs> insulting someone by saying, like, he's so, basically, he's so dumb, he thinks a Mexican border pays rent. And I remember like seeing that. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but like, it's not that racist, like, because it's like, you know, the Mexican border, as in like, like a, not someone who rents a, you know, boards a room, you know? Right. Know. Right. Like it is. It's funny that sometimes like throwing the word Mexican in there automatically gets people's hackles up. Mhm. I just find that interesting. Yeah, I was just looking how Speedy Gonzales, apparently the Cartoon Network has the rights, and they haven't put it on since like 2002. They said wow. it's on, it hasn't been on the air for years because of its ethnic stereotypes. 
<laughs> but see, then like that, and then I I react against that. Then so instead of like you know locking it in a vault and forgetting about it, then redo it, like right, recontextualize it, update it. Right, right. I mean, like you could almost argue, right, that that's sort of what happened. Like the early Mickey Mouse and um, like early cartoons that are now cultural icons had racist undertones, right? When yeah. You, there's plenty of racist episodes with Mickey Mouse in them. Yeah, yeah. yeah and Tom and Jerry, too. Right. Oh, like, yeah. I remember, like, going to show my kids Tom and Jerry and being like, oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> Pause. Yeah. Let me carefully choose my episodes. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, like, did they get, like, a shot into the face and then suddenly yeah. they look like a Sambo character? Like, oh, uh-huh. crap. Like, yeah. They yeah, they start a mammy character. Yeah. Shooing them out with a broom. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting too, even movies from the eighties and nineties that I'm showing the kids now, it's like, oh gosh. Yeah. It, it, that's mm-hmm. when it feels like we've come a long way. Yeah. Where yeah. everyone's like talks about like the PC police or you know, political right. correctness <laughs> if you will. Um it's but it's just America. Like, oh, yeah. there's a lot less offensive stuff in what we watch. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. can watch go back and watch some of these movies from the eighties and you're just like, wait, what? Like if that was on, if that just like came out on television now or in a movie, you'd be like, This is yeah. what is this? Yeah. Yeah, like Sixteen Candles when like was like one of the first scenes when they're talking about she wants a car and a guy and then what was the joke is something like pink and black and then the friend's like, What? A black guy and a pink car? She's like, No, 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 no. Black car and a pink guy. Like, right. Like what? Right. Like even back then, I remember thinking like, "Yeah, that's a little weird." Like, <laughs> is that shocked that uh, she would want to date a black guy? Yeah. But think about it. Like even like because uh, you know Buffalo Speedway is my the first book I wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about pizza delivery drivers, and that you know it got some attention because of the screenplay one the final draft big break contest but i would always get the note of like oh just change the character from black to white and then we'd consider it and i got that several times and that was very discouraging wow did they give a why like did they try to justify that or was it just like we think we're gonna sell more yeah it's just yeah it's like overseas they don't like black people you know it's it's ridiculous but and then that like even back when was that like that was like, I guess that was like eight years ago. But even back then, like, I started to think, like, oh, what's what's the biggest Hollywood movie where it was a black man and a white woman as a romantic couple? Like, there wasn't. Yeah, I mean, like, not I nothing. Comes or like even mind. kissed on the screen. Like, right. Hancock, you know, the Will Smith. Yeah. Yeah, and I, the Pelican Brief yeah. just Oh my God, I was just going to say that. But, but they, they weren't yeah. even romantic. Like, yeah, right. you know, I read kids. that there was actually a, a love scene in that movie that they filmed and they cut it out and they yeah. like eliminated any of the, you know, any romantic like dialogue or like undertones to, yeah. to it. Yeah, it was really only until, what, like Focus? Uh, Will Smith. Yeah. That came um, out like last year, right? Yeah, yeah. Margot Robbie, yeah. Like that was. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm it. sure we're pre- same. We're probably not. Remember. I mean, but yeah, there's the 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 one with the um, Save the Last Dance. Oh yeah. Like 
There was one, but that was like more of a dancing movie. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's very It's funny because like so much of this dovetails into Buffalo Speedway. So the premise of this is that this is pizza delivery on the day of O.J. Simpson's Bronco Chase. Like, I, I love this comic, by the way. It's not for kids, for those of you. Right, right. <laughs> definitely an adult comic. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because this has been, like, the year of O.J. Like, yeah. with two different shows focusing on that time period. And now yeah. it just made me think of, like, Marsha Clark and Chris Stern apparently did have a thing together. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. we like, think about those uh, relationships. Did you find Buffalo Speedway got like more sort of pickup this year with with OJ Mania? Not that much. Um, I, I have been working on basically like a kind of a sequel, and that's gotten some attention. But uh, but yeah, Buffalo Speedway. It's interesting because one of the first images I thought of when I was thinking of that story, and this was like basically like back in the 90s was there's a scene in the book where you know the guy's running you know running after his girlfriend you know she's upset and he's like trying to like hey stop i'm sorry you know and you know this happened to me in college where i was doing that and you know, basically it was raining my girlfriend was running you know and like sort of it was raining so she was like sort of squealing in the rain and i was like wait, wait, stop, you know, chasing after her. But I just got this image like, oh, if, I, if someone just, like, saw this out of context, it looks like I'm chasing a girl, you know, like mm -hmm. trying to steal her purse or something. So that was, like, one of the images I thought of, of, like, oh, cops coming upon these characters, you know, running in the rain just like an innocent, like, hey, I'm sorry, kind of thing. But then taking it out of context and basically, like, beating the crap out of this guy because they think he's about to attack a woman. Right. You know, a black man about to attack a white woman. Mm -hmm. And, and just how the... And sorry. I had this image, you know, like way back then, but, like, it's so prescient now with, like, right. the, you know, hands up, don't shoot, and, you yeah. know, Black Lives Matter, that it's chilling. It's, it's, like, yeah, even though it's... Like, advanced yeah. that much. Yeah. So have you... Uh, you said you are working on a sequel. Can you give us a little bit more on that, or is it is it buttoned up? Uh, well, this one would be basically like the the son of the two main characters, and how he, he basically goes he, you know, goes to Washington D.C. and it's basically about the the pizza delivery drivers in Washington D.C. and how huh. they interact with the politicians and stuff. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that is well, fertile that's, ground. Yeah, that's really potentially in the coming year it could be very. Fertile. Yeah. Right. It's a little like House of Cards, but from the perspective of the pizza boys. <laughs> so I had been writing it and like, and then remember there was the, the, the government shutdown with, um, yeah. Beloved Ted Cruz and his green eggs oh, and ham. Yeah. Right. 2013, so, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that like, they finally got people to talk because someone actually delivered pizza to the, the, the Congress. Um, and like that actually got people out of their, like their own rooms into into a, like a unified space and like they could actually like see each other as humans again and talk. They were united by pizza. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. Pizza can solve all of the world's problems. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. 
any other projects coming up or comic cons where people can find you um i'm working on a new book with oni press and this one's uh this one i've been working on a long time it's called saifu and uh and this is like basically it's an all black cast and it's about a kid in brooklyn who wants to be a dj um and uh, did you ever see the documentary Scratch? No. Two thousands. It's great. One of my favorite movies. So it's a documentary about like turntablists and like you know, Grandmaster Flash and like the the origins of scratching and turntabling. Cool. But it's funny that like there's a common thread through like Mixmaster Mike and and Cuber. Like they all have this theory that they're actually communicating with aliens when they scratch. And like even Mixmaster Mike had like had an incident where he was scratching one night late at night and then saw like giant like lights appear outside his window and so I was <laughs> seriously fun. like that's yeah, a thing yeah <laughs> and it's weird because they and then, and then you notice like in the background on all their turntables like they all have these like robot toys on there so I was like oh what if that was true so basically Saifu is about a kid who is scratching one night and then aliens appear and then. Oh my god! Huh. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's very like hip hop, right? Kung fu, sci-fi, music centric. That's such a cool project, and it's all ages. Yeah. Great. I love it when you do the all ages stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because like Buffalo Speed, I always felt bad when I was at conventions of like, because my style yet yeah, is cartoony. Mm-hmm. I always felt bad when like kids were about to reach for it and flip through it. And I have, to, I have to slap it out of their hands. <laughs> no. Well, that's what I think, too. I mean, I have this experience of, like, going and then going with my kids. It does seem like taking families to cons now is a much bigger thing than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm hoping that changes. Because even, like, a couple of years ago at Comic-Con, I was just looking at every comic book cover, and everything's got, like, a gun or a knife. <laughs> dripping blood on it and a baseball bat with blood on it like i'm just hoping like and we break out of that like not everything needs to be that violent or well i have to say that's why i love things like adventure time and uncle grandpa because it's stories that are unlike any stories you're seeing anywhere else you know there may be still be violence in them but in a very cartoony way but i i feel like it's such imaginative storytelling yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of fun working on the Uncle Grandpa comic. Because yeah. it was basically, it's almost like, it's almost like a sketch comedy variety show with cartoon characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as you saw, my son cosplayed as Uncle Grandpa yeah. last year to <laughs> right. Comic-Con. Right. Well, that wasn't the actual Uncle Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's shocking. The lack of mustache gave him away. <laughs> The best thing was walking around, like, he wasn't recognized when he went trick-or-treating as Uncle Grandpa, but when he walked around <laughs> Comic-Con, like, it, it, the best were the college kids that, like, yeah. <laughs> possibly a little stoned going, right, right. possibly Grandpa! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was they thought they were really high then, like, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> he came on TV, dude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was very good. <laughs> His nice. belly bag started talking to everyone. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you let our listeners know where to find you online and where to buy Hero Hotel? 
Yeah. Uh, so go to herohotelcomic.com, and that'll take you right to the store where you'll be able to buy it. Nice. It drops on November 21st. All right. Which is my birthday. So. Happy and, birthday. And less than a month away. This is great. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and where can we find – do you have a, a homepage or a Twitter handle that um, that we can include? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, supermercadocomics.com. And the best place to follow me is on Instagram. Okay. And that's at supermercadocomics. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah. yeah.